The Old Testament scripture reading is found in Isaiah 11, verses 1 to 10. In your Bibles, this is on page 640 and 641. A shoot shall come out from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of, its root, out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt around his waist and faithfulness the belt around his loins. The wolf shall live with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the kid. The calf and the lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put its hand on the adder's den. They will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. On that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal to the peoples. The nation shall inquire of him, and his dwelling shall be glorious. This is the word of the Lord. I can't resist telling you this story before I begin. It was my privilege yesterday to sit and listen to two different home groups who had come together for an afternoon of carol singing at uh, two altersheims uh, near here. And so uh, 25 people who had mandatory rehearsals and who took this carol singing very seriously stood up front. And I sat among the, uh, the old folks uh, practicing my, my limited German with them. And uh, I, I had this uh, feeling of being blessed to be part of a church that would take uh, that kind of ministry that seriously uh, to give up an afternoon of their time to spend with people who seemed to me to be lonely. And uh, anyway, it was a wonderful afternoon, and uh, I am glad to be here. Let's get to the lesson. Uh, some of you will know or recognize the name William Willimon. He's a bishop in the Methodist Church in the U.S., and for 15 years he was dean of the chapel at uh, Duke University, also in the U.S., and just as a footnote, you might be interested to know that Luke Powery, who was once an intern here, this is before uh, IPC was in the habit of calling associate pastors, Luke Powery is now the dean of the chapel at uh, Duke University. 
In any case, uh, Willimon is retired now, and occasionally he reflects on his ministry in his personal blog, and, and this week I was very interested to uh, see what he wrote. His, uh, his sermons during Advent, he, he said, all those years ago at uh, Duke Chapel, uh, often drew negative responses. I mean, overall, his preaching was very well received, and over a thousand people a week would gather to uh, hear him preach, including my brother-in-law and sister-in-law, who lived uh, in the neighborhood, so to speak. But during this one season of the year, uh, it, it seems, people were not very impressed. And he remembers one person in particular uh, finding him after uh, a sermon. Uh, he was greeting at the door, and, and this person said, Will, uh, isn't this supposed to be the most joyous season of the Christian year? Uh, then, then why are you reminding us of God's judgment? Why are you so gloomy? And that little story uh, uh, struck me, I think, because our New Testament reading for today, this story I'm about to read for you, uh, about John the Baptist announcing the coming of the Savior of the world, is also kind of gloomy. And not just kind of gloomy. John the Baptist, as Matthew describes him in, in this story, is scary. And, and here's the thing, he means to be scary. He is working hard at, at being scary. John the Baptist always turns up in, in Bible readings at this time of year, although uh, I think this is interesting. He never turns up in children's Christmas pageants. <laughs> right? But he turns up at, at this time of year because his job, and, and in fact the, the purpose of his life, was to announce the coming of the Christ. And that was good news, of course, obviously, but it was also news of judgment. The, the, the Christ that John the Baptist was imagining was coming into the world with a winnowing fork in his hand. He was going to come and, and separate the wheat from the chaff, and then the story says that the chaff was going to go into an unquenchable fire. So, you don't want to say something like that, I suppose, at a children's Christmas pageant. In fact, those are not words that we want to hear at this time of year. Am I right? Right, but they are Christmas themes, and, and, and this is what it means that a, a Savior will come among us. Uh, that a light will shine in the darkness and that a baby will be born who will save his people from their sins. You know, in some ways, this is a message for adult audiences. But oh my, the world is desperate to hear this message. We think we want twinkling lights at, at, at Christmas and the, the smell of glue vine in, in the markets. And don't get me wrong, I love that smell when I make my way through but what the Bible presents to us is the truth. And it is an uncomfortable truth, and it is an inconvenient truth. The, the truth that we protect our children from hearing. Let's listen to this story together as we find it in uh, Matthew's Gospel. And I want to focus my attention today on that story we heard from uh, uh, the prophecy of Isaiah. But as you'll... Uh, soon discover these two stories are very closely linked. Let's listen for God's word as we find it in Matthew chapter 3, beginning with the first verse. In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. 
This is the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore clothing of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then the people of Jerusalem and all Judea were going out to him and all the region along the Jordan, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the granary. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Dear friends of Jesus Christ, in the 19th century, there was a a pastor, a a Quaker pastor, uh, with the name Edward Hicks. And you may not immediately recognize that that name, but you may have seen one or two of his paintings. Uh, Hicks was called to uh, serve his first church in uh, 1812, and he very quickly ran into some personal financial difficulties. He and his wife had five children, which may have been a factor in the uh, financial difficulties. And the church... Uh, could not pay him enough to cover his most basic uh, living expenses, so to support his family, uh, he began to paint. And one of his favorite paintings was the scene uh, described in uh, uh, Isaiah chapter 11, the one you heard earlier where the wolf uh, shall uh, live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the kid, uh, the calf and the lion and the fatling together, and a little child uh, shall lead them. Hicks painted that scene more than 100 times during the course of his life. So the chances are actually quite good that you've seen at least one of those paintings, uh, uh, maybe a print. Uh, Those paintings hang in pastor's offices, they hang in Sunday school classrooms, and even in some museums uh, around the world. And even though Hicks came back to the scene uh, time and time again throughout uh, his life, one thing about his painting never changed. The eyes of the animals in all of his paintings are unusually big. The eyes are wide open. Uh, Someone has said that the animals look uh, surprised or astonished. And uh, that seems to have been Hicks' intent. Uh, This is not something you see every day. Animals do not behave in this way, and so even they are surprised. The American comedian uh, Woody Allen, some of you thought of this before I brought it up, Uh, The American comedian Woody Allen once said that when the calf and the lion lie down together, the calf doesn't get much sleep. And that's a funny line, I suppose, uh, because what Isaiah is prophesying here is beyond anything that his readers dare to imagine. Uh, 
right? There is within every human heart this longing for peace, and it's peace within, it's peace within the relationships that are close to us, and it's peace throughout the world. But here's the thing, we, we don't imagine that we are ever going to see this peace. Right? We, we despair that we will live long enough to see that kind of peace in our lives. By the time Isaiah wrote the, the great kingdom that uh, David had built, and then, which was expanded and solidified maybe by his son Solomon, had deteriorated and crumbled, there wasn't much left of it, times were grim, uh, foreign armies were ready to march through uh, what was left of the country. And, and then it was Isaiah who asked his people to imagine this scene of devastation. The, the armies have burned and destroyed everything. The, the, the trees in his imagination have all been cut down. Nothing of any worth is left. And then you look closely, he writes, and there is a stump, which looks like all the other uh, stumps around, but a green shoot or a, a sprout is growing out of it, a, a living thing. And that shoot, uh, Isaiah writes, will one day bear fruit. Uh, Sam reminded us last week that Isaiah, uh, the book of Isaiah is very different from what we might expect. It's a, a, a book that is filled with condemnation and, and judgment. And you would never get that if you, you came to worship in December and, and heard only certain texts. But the truth is that Isaiah contains a great deal of judgment. I mean, read the first chapter sometime. You don't even have to go farther than that. God says there, among other things, that he hates our worship. Our solemn assemblies. God, God considers our offerings to be an abomination. You, you, you read that chapter and you come to the conclusion that, that God is sick and tired of us, his people. But then, in, in the middle of all of this gloom and despair, we find these brief and, and, and unexpected passages of soaring beauty and hope. I think you know them because we, we hear them at, at this time of year. Uh, chapter 7, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and bear a son and will call his name Emmanuel. Wow! We weren't expecting that. Chapter 9, the people who walked in darkness, that's us. The people who walk in, in darkness have seen a great light, and those who lived in a land of deep darkness, that's us too. I mean, on them light has shined. Chapter 35, waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert, and the burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. And I like this, a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the holy way, and the unclean shall not travel upon it, but it shall be for God's people, and so no traveler, not even fools, shall go astray. One more, chapter 40. Comfort, O oh comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that, that, that she has served her term and that her penalty is paid and, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries out, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. I mean, tell me, I, what do you make of this? Seriously, how, how do you explain a, a book like Isaiah? 
You know, Isaiah was, and in some ways still is, one of the most popular books of the Bible, along with the Psalms. It was the one book of the Bible that was preserved in the caves at Qumran, along the Dead Sea, forgotten and undisturbed for nearly 2,000 years. What book were they reading? What book were they studying and drawing comfort from as the Roman armies were heading in their direction? Well, it was Isaiah. For them, this book described their lives like no other. And I think it describes ours too. Maybe, like my friend Will Willimon, I'm being too gloomy here. Maybe you were hoping for something to make you feel good today. Only the good parts, Doug, please. None of the bad. But sorry. Sorry. You know, that's not how the story is written, and it would be dishonest of me to present the gospel in, in a different way. The, the gospel comes to a world that, that looks very nearly defeated. And if it didn't, then that gospel would never sound like good news. This is what I want to leave with you today, uh, this mysterious dimension to our faith. The hope we have, and always in the middle of judgment. The the light we see, always in a world of darkness. I have a colleague, and and we serve together on a a board in the U.S., and and this colleague is one of the leading authorities among worship scholars in the world today, and and my hope has been to bring him here so he could preach and teach for us, and it hasn't worked out yet. Uh, I have not given up hope. His name is, is uh, John Whitfleet. And, and 10 or 12 years ago, he noticed uh, what I've been describing for you today, this, or this morning, namely that uh, believers like to read from Isaiah uh, at this time of year, but only selected chapters. And, and the English idiom for this, by the way, is cherry picking. Uh, y- y- you can blame it on the composer Handel, I think, uh, and his magnificent Messiah, but we all do it. And so my friend John wrote a scholarly account of what he called the pretty texts in Isaiah. And what he recommends, and I love this and I want to share it with you, what he recommends is that we look at Isaiah the way we look at a Rembrandt painting. So vast stretches of darkness and shadows and judgment, these are his words, dramatically punctuated by shafts of light and grace. In fact, this is my amateur observation, since obviously I'm, I'm no art historian. The darkness of these Rembrandt paintings, and I assume that it's become even darker over the years as the paintings have aged, but, but, but the darkness makes the light appear all the more dramatic. Right? All the more stunning, don't you agree? So you see a collar, or you see some hair, a face, and it looks as bright as the noonday sun, possibly because it's surrounded by so much darkness. Look, I think this is the way that God comes to us. That was the way he came to us in Bethlehem, and that's the way he comes to us today. It's always a light shining in the darkness. And unless we see the darkness, and unless we acknowledge its presence with us, we can't really appreciate the light. As you know, there's no scholarly agreement on when exactly Jesus was born. I'm sorry if I'm the first person ever to point that out to you. 
I mean, it seems unlikely that Jesus was born in December, scholars say, because uh, sheep, uh, the ones that are mentioned in Luke's gospel, uh, would not have been grazing in the open air, sorry, at this time of year. That did not happen until the spring, certainly not in December. But frankly, the exact date of Jesus' birth does not matter. But early on, and and, and certainly by the 4th century AD, Christians began to celebrate the birth of Jesus in December at at one of the darkest and and gloomiest times of the year. And I I suppose that there were lots of reasons for that, and all of the historians here today will point out the, 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 the issue of the pagan holidays and so on, but I have a guess as to why this month feels right for celebrating the arrival of the Savior of the world, and my guess is guided more by spiritual insight than by the historical record. It feels right to talk about God's arrival when things around us are getting darker and darker and colder and colder and when days are getting shorter and shorter. It even feels right that God should come among us when we are distracted. By all the decorations and the smells, I'm mentioning glue vine again, and I mean all of the, the, the smells that are associated with this time of year. Deep within, we know that not all that glitters is gold. Right? Deep within us, we know that God is not to be found in the lights and the, the, the Christmas markets and the Christmas sweaters and the, the brightly colored presents. So Christians began celebrating at this time of year. Why? Because we know in our heart of hearts that darkness will never overcome the light. That, that, <laughs> that cold will never overwhelm God's warmth. That hatred will never prevail over love. That repression will never triumph over freedom. That the armies of this world no matter how technologically sophisticated they become, will never have the last word. We know that. You and I know that. At the darkest, coldest, shortest, most miserable time of the year, it is Christian people, people who always defy popular wisdom, and it's people like us who stand and sing, what? (laughs) Joy to the world! (laughs) And, and, and why do we do that? Because we know something the rest of the world does not know. A baby has been born. And that baby has grown into a man, and the son of man, as he liked to say, the, the man who would show us a different way to live our lives. That man, of course, is Jesus, light of the world, savior of his people. The one who invites us, the, ones who, the one who invites you now, to surrender your life and your stubborn will to him. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and nature sing. Will you pray with me? Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that in the middle of cold and and darkness, uh, we can see the light that you are shining into the world. We thank you that you have opened our eyes to it, and and so our prayer today is that you will allow us to trust it. 
Right, as the gloom settles in and as the days become uh, darker and dark, shorter and shorter, we pray that our trust will grow in your promise to make this world over again and to bring peace where there is no peace today. We pray this in, in Christ's name. Amen.